In 1088, in the city of Pisa, a man sat down at his desk to write. As he searched for ink, his mind turned to thoughts of his spiritual ancestors, the mighty Romans. Over a thousand years before his time, the Romans had sailed to Africa and destroyed the mighty Carthaginian Empire, becoming the masters of the Mediterranean Sea. Mare Nostrum, they called it. Our sea. His small seaside city was no Roman Empire, he thought, but this was still our sea. He ran his fingers over the elaborate gold ring he wore. It had been cut off the hand of a corpse in the city of Medea on the African coast. Yes, this was still our sea. Channeling the language of his forefathers, the language of men like Cato and Scipio Africanus, the archaic, ossified form of his own Roman tongue, he set pen to paper. And this is what he wrote. I am about to write a history of the Pisans and renew the memory of the ancient Romans. For now, this memory extends wonderful praise to Pisa, which Rome herself once received by conquering Carthage. Firstly, I praise the most mighty hand of the Redeemer, by whose force the Pisans have destroyed the most impious of people. And they are the Medeans, singled out by name, for it was the city of Medea, under an evil man who nourished them. Founded along a beautiful sea line, this wicked city held more than a hundred thousand captives. It was governed by Tami, an impious Saracen, similar to the Antichrist, that cruelest of snakes. After having constructed a well-built harbor near the city, surrounded by great walls and filled with ships, he, along with his Saracens, would devastate Gaul. He would capture from among all those living in Spain, and he would wreak havoc along the whole of the Italian coastline. He would loot throughout the Roman Empire, up to Alexandria. There is no place on earth, nor island in the sea, that Tami did not disturb with his horrendous treachery. And so the captives would cry out to the Redeemer most loudly, so that the whole world wept most bitterly. They would call out for the Pisans with miserable wailing. They would beg the Genoese to act with heart-rending tears. By this earthquake, each of these two nations were called to action, and they set the task at hand immediately. The Genoese assembled with extraordinary courage, and they joined themselves to the Pisans in loving affection. And so, the royal fleet departs and sets sail, and soon they see cities in which Tamin dwells. Sea, land, and walls filled with pagans most foul, whom the arrogant one had assembled from faraway lands. These are the enemies of the Maker. 
who created all things, and they capture Christians for hollow glory. Remember ye Goliath, the famous giant, who's felled by the stone of David, a small boy. Now the armed men make for land on small boats, testing the depth of the sea with their incredibly long spears. They emerge as lions as soon as the spears touch land. Quicker than the eagles above, they attack the enemy. The enemy are slaughtered and dismembered like a herd of animals, none of them having the strength with which they might resist. After the bravest among them go in from above and below, they spread throughout the entire city without a moment's rest. The women, virgin and widowed, are slaughtered, and the infants are crushed so that they are unable to ever live. So many of the Saracens were pitiful corpses, who exhale now foul stenches by the hundreds of thousands. Some assail the precious, elaborate mosque. They slay a thousand of Muhammad's priests. Others bring the port into astonishing disarray. The weapons arsenals and all the towers, they likewise shatter. From there, they carry away a thousand ships, which are then burned on the beach. The great fire was truly similar to that of Troy. Others invade the castle and demolish the towers. They kill all the royal horses and mules. They carry away a thousand banners of gold and silver, which now hang in Pisa, the spoils of triumph. Everywhere, they destroyed extravagant buildings, simultaneously carrying off on their small boats anything of worth. They lead away Saracens and captives without number. All gifts for you, Jesus, without doubt. The glorious ones have returned with wonderful valor, so this world remains in your praiseworthy honor. They consecrated a most beautiful church to St. Sixtus, and they gave out sacred riches throughout the world. Praise be to you, God, three in one and most high, in glory above all things, strongest in all matters. You who must be feared and loved above all, whose everlasting glory endures. Amen. In the year of our Lord, 1088. And welcome to History of the Utremer, episode 1.9, Mare Nostrum. Our introduction today was an abridged version of the Carmen in Victorium Pisanorum, the poem of Pisan Victory, a medieval poem celebrating the sack of the city of Medea in 1087. 
Now, before we start talking about the context for this pillaging, that is the main focus of today's episode, the Italian merchant republics in the 11th century, I want to talk a bit about the poem itself, the Victorian Pisanorum. Uh, I'm not a fluent enough speaker of Latin to just switch back and forth between Latin and English, and, uh, and actually, sorry for my uh, long vowels, I'm sure I got more than one wrong uh, reciting the poem. It's been a while, and I usually don't have to read Latin out loud, I just have to read it. And I never have conversations in Latin, obviously. Um, anyway, I'm just going to use an anglicized pronunciation for, you know, the poem and the Latin words from now on. And this is actually a great transition into the first point I want to make. The poem is written in classical Latin, which the Pisans did not speak natively. They had to learn it as a second language. Now, they did have the advantage that classical Latin was just the archaic form of their own language. That's a lot like me as well, apart from English, I'm a native Spanish speaker, and I also speak French as a second language. There are obviously tons of similarities between the modern varieties of Latin and the old school version, but this can be a double-edged sword. The text shows a lot of spelling errors and inconsistencies. This is mostly because the pronunciation that's more natural to a Romance language speaker makes it a bit hard to remember some of the rules for writing classical Latin. Think about the spelling difference between write as in to write a letter and write as in your right hand. These used to be pronounced differently. The W in write a letter was not silent, and neither was the GH in your right hand. But now, the two words are homophones, and it's pretty common to see misspellings, maybe leaving out the W or something like that. The Pisan who wrote this poem also forgot some letters. For example, they frequently left out the H's in words, because these were not pronounced anymore, and the diphthong ae is usually just written as e. I am planning a little episode focusing on the use of Latin in Latin Christendom and its relationship with the Romance languages slash dialects. It's a bit complicated, so we're not going to get into it all now, but it's coming. Apart from the missing letters, though, there were some things added in, words that are not classical Latin at all, that are borrowed from other languages. For example, obviously, classical Latin was not being spoken when Islam was founded, so the words mesquita for mosque and makumatae for a follower or priest of Muhammad were borrowed from Arabic. Uh, you won't find them in the writings of Cicero or anything like that. And even more interestingly, in some cases, the words that were borrowed weren't for new concepts. They were replacing native Latin terms. This is really what I want to focus on, because they can tell us a lot about Italian culture at this time. Two of these are very interesting. The first is dar sana, which was later loaned into English as the word arsenal. This word is from the Arabic term, dar ashina. Apologies for my Arabic, I don't speak any Arabic. In Arabic, this term just means manufacturing shop. It was loaned into the various Romance languages of Italy with the meaning of shipyard, and then later changed to mean a place for storing weapons in general. And then, uh, I think like a cricket team or something? Something British, I can't remember. Anyway, the second word is stolush, meaning fleet. For the Italians, specifically a war fleet. This word was loaned from Greek, the language of the Byzantine Romans. Notice the maritime context for both of these words, shipyard and fleet, and the languages they come from, Greek and Arabic. Latin has words for shipyard and fleet. They are nawalia and glashish. The fact that the Italians were abandoning their native Latin-based seafaring words in favor of Greek and Arabic terms gives us 
two hints. First, the sea, and anything to do with it, was dominated by the Byzantines and the Arabs. And second, these Italians were clearly in close enough contact with these two groups for vocabulary to have rubbed off on them. This is how we have to understand the rise of the Italian merchant republics. They modeled themselves on the Byzantine and Arabic trade that had dominated the Mediterranean for centuries. Their ships were clones of Byzantine galleys, and particularly in the Western Mediterranean, they based their operational model, which blended piracy and trade, on the Arabs. But the methods the merchant republics used to eventually supplant, uh, at least partially, the Byzantines and the Arabs weren't always the same. Today, the coat of arms of the Italian navy bears four quadrants, a red cross on a blue field representing the Republic of Genoa, a white cross on a red field representing the Republic of Pisa, a white cross on a blue field representing the Republic of Amalfi, and the gold-winged line of St. Mark wielding a sword representing the Republic of Venice. Okay, the other three get crosses and Venice gets a fucking line with a sword? There's no way Venice wasn't the last one to send in their bit of the design. I mean, if the rest had known that's what Venice was going to get up to, I'm sure Genoa would have thrown in a fire-breathing T-Rex and Amalfi a cyclops with laser vision and Pisa a great white shark with an AK-47. Okay, okay, back on track. Despite the fact that all of these cities are now just cities in the Republic of Italy and they share the naval coat of arms in the 11th century, they were not really politically connected in any meaningful way. In fact, it was independence that characterized the merchant republics. And if you think about it, it makes sense. For commercial success, you need to find the best prices and the best markets. That means trading across frontiers, geopolitical, cultural, and religious. However, larger states often have greater geopolitical goals, and they usually place restrictions on trade with rivals and enemies. This is true now, and it was true to an even greater extent before the rise of capitalist states. Size also matters here. Don't be fooled, but it's not the bigger the better. Totally the opposite. What you need is a teeny weeny micro state. A micro state. Just one city. There are a few interlocking reasons for this. To start with, let's look at the governmental model for these city-states. The republic part of merchant republic. Republic comes from the Latin phrase res publica, meaning something like what belongs to the people. Literally, the people's thing. We can interpret the people's thing. I'm not going to make another dick joke. I only get one per episode. Anyway, we can interpret the people's thing as their common interest, their common good, something they all share and something that they're all connected to. This is very different from medieval feudalism, which is a top-down hierarchical organization. In feudalism, you only have ties to those directly above you and those directly below you. The entire state is disconnected at the horizontal level. The people don't have a thing. They don't have anything in common. They have bosses and underlings. There's no way to negotiate a common good. Those tools don't exist. So commercial endeavors, which require coordination from multiple members, are more or less impossible. And trade, which requires a certain level of mediation and trust, is extremely limited. These are really simplified, crude explanations of both feudalism and republics. Feudalism doesn't even have a universally accepted definition. 
we will return to and flesh out some of these concepts when we look at the government of the Uchimer states. Right now, I'm just using them very loosely to describe the bigger picture. And it's not like feudal structures and hierarchy didn't exist in the merchant republics. These were not modern republics, which I mean still have issues with achieving truly representative government. No, no, no. These were oligarchic republics, meaning it wasn't so much the people's thing. It was some rich people's thing. Only the men from certain uber-rich families participated in elections. In Venice and Amalfi, they were known as the Patricians in the tradition of the Roman Republic, which, I may remind you, also started as a mere city-state. Very typically, though there was variation in how this worked, the Patricians would choose one of their number, usually the oldest fart in the room, to be the Doge. Doge is the English pronunciation of the Italian word doge, which is itself from the Venetian word doze, which comes from the Latin word dukes, which also gave us duke via French. Unlike a duke, the position of doge was not hereditary, at least not usually. Instead, the doge was elected by the patricians. This kind of model with a ruling class of equals that use democratic tools like elections to make decisions is extremely hard to implement over large areas. Just look at the Roman Republic, which soon after consuming the Mediterranean became the Roman Empire. And these kinds of republics first popped up in the ancient Greek city-states of antiquity. And that city-state component remained a key factor for the medieval Italians. The physical limitations of a small size also play a role. Cities are parasites. They are resource-sucking leeches. No urban area produces enough food for itself. The surrounding area usually does that. Except, what if there is no surrounding area? Three of the four merchant republics are in very constraining physical spaces that do not allow for extensive agriculture or anything like that. So, what do you do then? Well, you might need to bring in resources from elsewhere. The easiest way to do that is over water. But then you need ships. But then you need some capital to get those ships. So maybe you start up a collection with the richest members in town. You guys all pitch in and get the ships and bring in the resources. Hooray! As long as you're sending ships out, you might as well bring some small luxury items as well. Make the most of the trip. And since you and your rich buddies are the ones footing the bill for all this and bringing in the food, more and more people are looking to you guys as the leaders. And before you know it, you've got yourself a merchant republic. That's just a model. Uh, real life is obviously more complicated, but you can see the basic outline. The lack of arable land in the surrounding area forced these cities to develop dispersed hinterlands. That's a term I'm borrowing from a great book called The Corrupting Sea, a study of Mediterranean history by Nicholas Purcell and Peregrine Horton. The section on dispersed hinterlands actually uses both Amalfi and Genoa as sort of prototypical examples, albeit with much more nuance than we have time to get into here. So I definitely recommend it if you're interested in this concept. These dispersed hinterlands basically function as long-distance surrounding areas. So instead of a stereotypical city with a ring of farms around it, this ring of farms are really scattered everywhere, and they're accessed via ship. Now, in developing these networks of subsistence trade, you've also developed the framework both logistical and governmental, to take advantage of commercial opportunities. Now, all of these features, independence and oligarchic republics, 
came slowly, and at different times for Venice, Amalfi, Genoa, and Pisa. In the 11th century, these cities still had only quasi or de facto independence, and their opportunities were still shaped to a large degree by which of the two Roman empires had them on a leash. A long leash, but still a leash. By two Roman empires, I mean, of course, the Byzantine Roman Empire and the Holy Roman Empire of the Germans, which I'm just going to call the German Roman Empire for the sake of nomenclatural symmetry. Now, the Byzantine republics were Venice and Amalfi. They were, in name at least, part of the Byzantine Roman Empire. However, they were de facto independent. But I don't want to overemphasize that. The Venetians and the Amalfitans both maintained very close ties to the Byzantines, and even though the empire wasn't exercising anything like political control, the two city-states still fell into the cultural orbit of the Romans. For example, they were in theory Latin Christian, but if you go to Venice now, you can see a lot of churches built in a Byzantine style. And what's more, individual leaders and factions within both cities would use Byzantine titles to shore up their legitimacy. The terms patrician and doge are in fact inherited from the Byzantine Romans, not the long-dead Western Roman Empire. These two titles, which in Greek are patricios and dux, were given out to local rulers as part of that whole wealth and honors thing we discussed at length back in episode 1.3. In Venice and Amalfi, these terms grew out of the Byzantine court system to become part of the local fabric of government. Now, despite their similarities, Venice and Amalfi were different in some critical ways, specifically geographically. So let's take a look at each of them individually. As always, maps and diagrams are available at historyoftheuchimer.wordpress.com. That's historyoftheuchimer.wordpress.com. At the very tip of the skinny Adriatic Sea that separates the Italian peninsula from the Balkans, there is a swampy lagoon of marshy brackish waters and muddy specks of swampland. To the various empires on the solid land nearby, the bog was of no use. But its inhabitants saw something else. Over centuries, they filled in the spots, elevated their little homes out of the muck, and in their out-of-the-way lagoon, they built a floating city, Venice. Although, at that time, and for most of history, it was really just a collection of small little swamp towns all working together. In their aquatic little home, they had access to only two main products, salt and fish. But they soon realized that they could trade these commodities for everything else they needed. As the Roman Empire slipped further into chaos, and the cities on dry land built walls which were ever higher and more imposing, the Venetians let the waters of the lagoon protect them. A Roman official, Cassiodorus, who traveled there in the 6th century, was astonished at the equality of the swamplands, where rich and poor lived side by side. He was probably idealizing the Venetians a bit, as he was an official from the capital Ravenna in the 6th century, when wealth and equality had never been harsher but his words do contain some truth. The construction of their living arrangements had generated a communal spirit of teamwork, and at that point, there was no immense wealth to be had in the city. The trade structures they had were still focused on subsistence, on developing those dispersed hinterlands. The Roman Empire was full of trade nodes, from Carthage to Rome to Constantinople to Antioch to Alexandria. There was no need of a Venice. What even is that? But with the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, and the effects the Arab conquests had on the Eastern Roman Empire, that changed as warlords came to dominate Italy. The elites fled to Venice, 
For generations, the Venetian nobility would trace their lineage back to the Romans who'd escaped the sinking imperial ship, no matter if some of these claims were more dubious than others. And as the barbarians carved up the empire, trade across frontiers became ever more difficult. But in Venice, there was no warlord to place barriers on trade. And what's more, the lack of land meant the elites had no possibility of owning great estates with hundreds of slaves, as they might have on the mainland. Instead, the only way they had to flaunt their wealth was through trade. Over the centuries, the opportunity created by the collapse of trade elsewhere in the West and the desire of elites to find something to channel their wealth into led Venice to develop their subsistence trade structures into more extensive luxury trade structures. Venice was able to avoid being absorbed by the barbarian warlords due to their benefactor, the Byzantine Roman Empire. For the Venetians, loyalty to the empire was very useful. They were much too far from Constantinople for the emperor to exert direct influence over them. But when those on the mainland started to look at Venice as a possible new province, they could cry out for aid from their Greek daddy. For example, in 810, the new Frankish emperor of the Romans, Charlemagne, sent his son Pepin to capture the city. The Venetians called out to their Byzantine overlords, whose fleet soon appeared to scare off the Franks. Uh, these are proper actual Franks, by the way. I know on this show we've gotten used to Frank just being a catch-all term for Western Europeans, but no, 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 these are real, just real Franks. Charlemagne and those who followed for centuries to come would all be forced to recognize Venetian quasi-independence. The Venetians, then, lived in two worlds, one foot in the east and another in the west. Mercantilism slowly began to dominate Venetian culture. Their relationship with the Byzantines meant they were one of the main exporters of luxurious goods from the east, and they organized their society around trade. This set them apart from their neighbors. As recorded by the abbot Otto of Cluny, in the 9th century, Count Gerard of Aurillac, now the patron saint of counts and bachelors, was traveling through Italy. In Rome, he had bought a most beautiful coat of fine fabric. And then later, near Pavia, he had run into some Venetian merchants who were peddling their wares, quote, as their custom was. In conversation with the Venetians, Gerard has shown them his wonderful new cloak and mentioned the price. The Venetians, no doubt looking to flatter the count, told him that he had gotten a fine deal and that in Constantinople, a fabric of that quality cost much more than he had paid. The Venetians meant this as a compliment. They were professional merchants who got off on buying low and selling high. But the Count was a typical Westerner. He was accustomed to a life of subsistence living. He was filled with remorse for having cheated the cloak vendor, and he had a servant run back to Rome to make up the difference between what he'd paid and the price the Venetians had mentioned. The Venetians also developed a weird obsession with the most exclusive of luxury items. Holy artifacts. Specifically, the body parts of dead saints. These were like medieval Pokemon cards. Everyone wanted their very own St. Peter's Pinky, or at least something they could pass off as St. Peter's Pinky. And the Venetians, who spent a lot of time in the East, where all the OG saints are from, were in the perfect position to catch them all. You might have heard of St. Mark's Basilica in Venice, built in a Byzantine style to house the body of St. Mark, which the Venetians had stolen from Alexandria by hiding it in barrels of pork that the Muslim officials didn't want to inspect too closely. Great story, maybe even true. But what were the Venetians doing in Alexandria? The answer is trading. The Venetians became another node in trade between the Fatimids and the Byzantines. 
From Venice, luxury goods from the east would trickle into Europe, and timber, iron, and slaves from Europe would be taken to the empire and the caliphate. The slaves were mostly pagan Slavs, but also, when they could get away with it, Christians. None of the Italian merchant cities shied away from slavery, and the Pope often had to intervene to put an end to the enslavement of Christians and subsequent sale to Muslims. Though, as soon as the Bishop of Rome had his back turned, they would just go back to it. The Byzantines also attempted to place some restrictions on trade with the infidel. Specifically trade of supplies that could help the Muslims in their military endeavors against the empire. The Venetians mostly followed these restrictions, or were at least secretive about violating the embargoes. And, for their loyalty to the empire, in 989, the Emperor Basil II granted them half off the commercial tariffs at the seaport city of Abydos, the entry point to the Dardanelles. Tax reductions will continue to play a big role in Venetian-Byzantine relations, so keep an eye on that. This tax reduction also gave him an advantage over our second Byzantine Republic city, Amalfi, which was somewhat less integrated into the Byzantine economic system. Amalfi was not only a bit farther politically from Constantinople, but also physically. Amalfi is located on the western side of the Italian peninsula, just south of Naples and Rome. However, when we talk about the Republic of Amalfi, we're not just talking about the town of Amalfi, but a collection of small towns. Amalfi was not only closely tied to the neighboring town of Atrani, which is just a few minutes away on foot, but it served as the face of collective trade endeavors by the tiny towns along the rocky coast of southwestern Italy. Historian David Abulafia describes Amalfitan as a brand name. Like in Venice, the foundations for commercial endeavors were also laid down by subsistence trading. Amalfi is a tiny spit of land, and nothing about its geographic location makes it particularly amenable to harboring ships. But Amalfi had to trade to survive, and so trade it did. Unlike Venice, which got its start centuries earlier, Amalfi really only started to become a player in the 10th century. And though it did benefit from its ties to the Byzantines, Amalfi was much more focused on trade with the Muslims. Specifically, Amalfi served as a bridge between Christian Europe and Muslim Sicily. Ships would make their way from Palermo up the short distance to Amalfi, and from there, the wares would spread throughout Europe. Amalfi soon began to expand on this. Close contacts with Sicily, which was itself closely tied to the Fatimids, soon led to expansions into North Africa and Egypt and even the Levant. In Fatimid-held Jerusalem, they were able to set up a small hospice to provide shelter for Latin Christian pilgrims. This small hospice would later evolve into the Holy Order of the Hospitallers, who we will be getting back to. Amalfitans made a ton of money from trading with the infidel, but operating within such religiously tense markets cost more than one Amalfitan their life. I will remind you of the Amalfitan massacre in Egypt under the Caliph Imam al-Aziz. Amalfitan sometimes got it from the other side as well. When the Crusaders besieged and then sacked Jerusalem in 1099, some Amalfitans were residing in the city. According to legend, they were ordered to throw rocks at the Crusaders, but these rocks magically turned into bread for the starving Crusaders. For some reason, I find this hard to believe. And more likely than not, a few Amalfitans ended up slaughtered along with the rest of the Jerusalemites. In the 11th century, Amalfi was on the rise, but this come-up was cut short by the arrival of everyone's favorite Francophone Vikings, the Normans. When Robert Guiscard took control of Amalfi in 1073, as part of his conquest of all of southern Italy, they lost their independence. 
Unlike with the Byzantines, miles away, the Normans were micromanagers. See, they were at war with the Muslims of Sicily, and they would soon be at war with the Byzantines. They couldn't very well have the Amalfitans trading with the enemy. Amalfi would remain an important trading center, but she would never quite reach the heights of her sister Venice. And an earthquake in the 14th century would completely destroy whatever remained of the trading infrastructure. Today, Amalfi is just a tiny town. So, we've seen how Amalfi and Venice used the existing trade networks of the Byzantines and the Fatimids to get in on maritime trade. But our other two republics would find an even more violent way to get their hands on a share of the market. The German republics were disruptors. And their path to commercial success was paved with piracy of the type we started this episode with. So now we turn to the German republics. These were Genoa and Pisa, who were, at least at the beginning of the century, under the dominion of the Holy Roman Empire of the Germans. Though, because of a total lack of centralization in the German Roman Empire, this was perhaps an even longer leash than the one the Byzantines had placed on the Venetians and the Amalfitans. The Holy Roman Empire, as we know it, was a baby in the 11th century. It had only really been formed out of the union of the Kingdom of Germany and the Kingdom of Italy in 962 by the Saxon Otto I. Though Charlemagne's Frankish Empire of the Romans is often viewed as a precursor to what Otto built, in reality, though it served as inspiration, the two were very different political entities. Otto I, King of Germany, had invaded Italy, deposed the local king, and named himself King of Italy. To add to his now double kingdoms, the Pope also crowned him Emperor of the Romans. The title of King of Italy, as well as King of Germany, would stay in the Emperor's hands, though. Sometimes he would pass it on to his heir, but the Italians wouldn't have a true king of their own again for nearly eight centuries, until 861, and the coronation of Victor Emmanuel II. However, just because the Emperor had this title on paper, doesn't mean he did too much with it. The Imperial Kingdom of Italy ran from the Alps in the north down to about the middle of the peninsula, from which point the chaos of southern Italy began. You can revisit episode 1.2 for a refresher if need be. What I neglected to mention then was that the north was just as messy as the south. Because the King of Italy was also King of Germany and Emperor of the Romans, he almost never had a lot of time to spend on or even in Italy. Instead, power was left up to local rulers like the Pope who ruled the Papal States, nominally a part of the kingdom and by extension the empire, but very often independently minded. It's kind of hard to vassalize God's man on earth, you know? And being the emperor's quote-unquote subject didn't stop the Pope from excommunicating Emperor Henry IV twice. That story, which also features our Norman friend Robert Giscar and the Byzantine Emperor Alexios Komnenos, will have to wait because it wasn't only the Pope who felt loyalty to the German Emperor was not really all that necessary. Throughout the 11th century, many parts of Italy made moves toward autonomy, including the cities of Genoa and Pisa. In a way, the presence of the German Emperor made this possible. It prevented the rise of a more hands-on King of Italy, and allowed for the various cities of Italy to slowly establish themselves as little republics and communes, instead of being globbed into a larger, more militarily powerful state. This trend towards self-determination will only increase over time, and by the 12th century, the Kingdom of Italy will be a patchwork of quasi-independent city-states. Back in the 11th century, the very first city-states were extricating themselves from imperial control. Both Pisa and Genoa achieved de facto independence during this century, and joined Amalfi and Venice as huge centers of trade. Our westernmost maritime republic is the Republic of Genoa. 
or in the Ligurian language native to the region, Repubblica de Zena. Genoa is perhaps not well known to the rest of the world. Maybe you know that the word jeans, as in blue jeans, comes from the French pronunciation of the city's name, and the blue cloth that they exported to France. Maybe you know Christopher Columbus was Genoese. Or maybe you know about the merchant empire that the Genoese established throughout the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. All of these things are exportations. They come outwards from Genoa. So what is Genoa? Leonardo da Vinci once said, speak to the Genoese about the sea. And that's mostly because the Genoese had no other option but to take to the sea. Genoa is located right at the turning point, where the Italian peninsula gives way to continental Europe. It's blocked off from the subalpine Po Valley by the northernmost extent of the Ligurian Apennine mountain range. That's historyoftheutumer.wordpress.com. At this intersection of mountain and sea, of peninsula and continent, Genoa formed a natural port for the peoples of northern Italy, and a natural stop for those coming from the south. With such limited space and without access to fresh water, the Genoese were forced to capitalize on those trade opportunities to draw supplies from the surrounding region, and, as in the case of both Venice and Amalfi, from this subsistence trade, the roots of more extensive commercial endeavors were planted. There's also an argument to be made for the role of collective trauma. In 934, the city was brutally sacked by North African Muslims, giving us a hint that there was at least some wealth in what must have remained an essential crossroads for regional trade. The destruction wrought by the invaders destroyed whatever evidence there may have been for early 10th century Genoa, so we can't know for sure how vibrant this trade was, but out of those ashes, a new Genoa would rise. The destruction of their city seems to have awakened something in the Genoese. In 958, they secured a charter from the king of Italy that asserted their rights to property. And then, the residents of Genoa decided to undertake new ventures. Perhaps inspired by their Muslim neighbors to the south, the Genoese soon became that classic medieval blend of merchant and pirate. And in this mold, they found themselves joined by their neighbor to the south, Pisa. Unlike the three republics we've seen thus far, Venice, Amalfi, and Genoa, Pisa had much more breathing room. Just south of Genoa, Pisa is properly on the peninsula and has a bit more space to maneuver. Accordingly, Pisa seems to have been less interested in trade than the Genoese, at least originally, and much more interested in piracy, that is, first removing and then replacing the Muslim pirates that prowled the Italian coasts. It was in this spirit that the sack of Medea happened. We saw all of these elements present in the Victorian Pisanorum, the reference to Medea's role in piracy and the focus on extracting wealth from their victims. The Genoese and the Pisans were just trying to flip the script supplanting the Muslim pirates, and they were doing a dang good job of it. The sack of Medea wasn't their first outing either. In 1016, the two cities teamed up to remove the Muslims that had started to make a home on the nearby island of Sardinia. In the beginning of the 11th century, the Caliphate of Cordoba, in Al-Andalus, Muslim Spain, was beginning to suffer from the same sort of instability as the type that had killed the Abbasids. They were beginning to crumble and give way to the Taifas small independent kingdoms. The Daifas would later be reincorporated into larger Muslim empires, but eventually they would be picked off and consumed by the Spanish during the Reconquista. Anyway, back in 1014, one of these Taifas was under the control of Mujahid al-Amiri, a former Slavic slave. Mujahid ruled over Denia and the Balearic Islands, and he soon set his sights on Sardinia as well. He began to set up outposts, but the Pisans and the Genoese were waiting for him, 
they soon chased him off the island and took control of it for themselves. Fights over control of Sardinia would soon break up this dream team, but not quite yet. It would also eventually generate a bit of controversy because Pisans and the Genoese really liked to enslave the native Sardinians, who were Christians. In 1064, the Pisans sent a fleet to lend a hand to the Normans conquering Sicily, but the Normans, for whatever reason, didn't want or need Pisan aid at that moment. So the Pisans went themselves to Palermo, where they raided the city. Let's take a look at the dynamic of both of these events. Uh, once again, though Sardinia wasn't an established Muslim territory, and Mujahid was just starting to test the waters, it's unlikely the Pisans and the Genoese would have been able to hold their own against the Caliphate of Cordoba if it had tried the same a century prior. And we've talked about the instability of the Sicilian emirs multiple times. In short, the success of Genoa and Pisa was contingent on Muslim internal quarrels. As the Muslims broke up into smaller factions, the Christians of the Western Mediterranean found themselves on more even footing. And the same holds for Medea. We briefly touched on the chaos in Euphrichia last time. As the Zirids attempted to break free of the Fatimids, all hell broke loose, and the Zirids had to relocate to the coast and their new capital at Medea. All of this left the Zirids not only weakened, but completely isolated, as the Fatimids, now under the rule of Badr al-Jamali, definitely wouldn't be lending a hand. And the Muslims of Sicily were nearly extinct. The last Muslim fort would fall in 1091, just four years later. So Medea was a perfect target. Pisa also had other motivations for the raid. They were in the process of changing allegiances from the German emperor to the pope. Tensions between the two were very high, and that first excommunication I mentioned earlier had happened just a decade prior in 1076. You might know about the Guelph-Ghibelline conflict in Italy. Well, that was just getting started, and Pisa, who had been more of an imperial fanboy originally, was switching over to the other side. Before embarking on the expedition, the Pisans made a stop in Rome to get some sort of papal support. Now, it's, it's not clear if this was only symbolic spiritual support or military support as well, but it seems this was an attempt to make it clear that the Pisans were pious and strengthened bonds with the papacy. Back in episode 2, we pause to take a look at the Norman conquest of Sicily from the Pope's perspective. If we switch that lens again for a second, we can see that the papacy is continuing to develop an even stronger concept of holy war. With the Normans, they just said, hey, and for what it's worth, I think Sicily should be yours. Now with the Pisans and the Genoese, it's a bit more. This expedition to Sacmedia is a great idea. Maybe I'll send a couple of guys to help out. In just eight years, they'll take another step. When we get there, we'll put all of these ideas together and see how it all leads up to the First Crusade. As historian Alistair C. Grant puts it, the expedition of 1087 was one part of a broad current of holy war that engulfed the Mediterranean region from the mid-11th century of which the First Crusade was the largest and most well-documented manifestation to that date. But that's a story for another day, because next time, we need to turn our attention to a puppet master who's been pulling the strings behind many of these events. A shadowy figure working behind the scenes to destabilize the East and thus provide an opening to the West. Ladies and gents, it's time we pull back the curtain to reveal it's been climate change all along. I'm sure all my topical references will age wonderfully. See you then.